lovely if we were old. We'd have survived all this. And everything would be uncomplicated and easy. Like it was when we were young. Katie, it was never uncomplicated. I've got steaks and baked potatoes and sour cream and chives and salad and fresh baked pie. I would have made a pot roast. I make a terrific pot roast, but uh, I didn't know whether you ever had pot roast, whether you like pot roast. And anyway, there wasn't time because it really should be made the day before. Uh, you can't go yet. Uh, you just got to stay for supper. That's all there is to it. What kind of pie? It's ticklish business anyway you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Ticklish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing classic cinema. I'm Kristen Lopez here once again with Samantha Ellis. Samantha, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. It's my birthday. And we're celebrating with a movie that I forced everybody to watch. Yay. So one time I get to be a dictator on this podcast. It's my birthday show. So we are talking about 1973's the way we were, Barbara Streisand, Robert Redford, my two favorite things. And we are joined once again by a special guest, my friend, Jill Marie Morris. Jill, how are you? Great. Thanks for having me on and happy birthday. Thank you so much. Jill, for people who don't know who you are, don't follow you on Twitter, which they should, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your connection to Hollywood, old movies, all of that? Sure. First of all, I don't have Twitter. That's fine. <laughs> after, after three times, I said, this social media platform is not for me. Um, <laughs> but it works for others, so that's great. So I am a psychic medium. I'm also a comedian. I have done a lot of public events across the United States since approximately 2012. And I've appeared in The House in Between, which is a documentary based on a haunted location in Mississippi. And I have two upcoming projects I cannot yet speak about that you'll see me in as well. And I just do, you know, try to take care of clients when they're going through grief and things of that nature. And as far as Hollywood goes, I used to live in West Hollywood, but before that, there has always, even since childhood for me, been an affinity and a pull to Hollywood as a little child. And so the older that I got and the more that I could explore and then finally arriving there, there is something so familiar with old Hollywood with me. It resonates, it's part of my soul. It makes me happy. And I just, classic films are my thing. I love classic films. And this film in particular has so much meaning to me in my personal life that I'm just thrilled to be part of your chat about it. So thank you. I know. I was very excited that you wanted to do this episode. And I'm just saying, Jill is not doing them right now because of COVID. But in person, Jill is awesome to talk about Old Hollywood with and do events. She's been fortunate to do Zoom events where deceased celebrities have just popped in into the spirit world. And it's been interesting. So future idea when COVID comes back, uh, if you get an opportunity to see Jill in person, you should definitely take advantage. Thank you. Before we get into the movie, please remember these shows do take time and support If you'd like to help us do more, please consider supporting us via Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. You get access to free movies, 
pins and amazing shows that we could only do with the help of our amazing patrons as well as follow us on social media we are on twitter and instagram if you search ticklish biz and our youtube channel if you search for ticklish business podcast we are inching ever closer to 100 subscribers so that we can actually get a proper url so i won't have to say search for us on youtube anymore so that takes out all the business stuff let's talk about 1973's the way we were directed by Sidney Pollack and has a script by Arthur Lawrence and an uncredited Patty Chayefsky and Francis Ford Coppola. That's a holy trinity of screenwriters right there. Barbara Streisand plays Katie Morosky, who is a opinionated young woman who is knee deep in politics. She meets Hubble Gardner, played by Robert Redford in college. He is a Upwardly mobile, apolitical writer with dreams of making it big. And the movie is about their relationship over several years and how the two kids just can't seem to make it work. I love this movie. This was a late discovery for me. I saw this at TCM's Classic Film Festival maybe about three or four years ago on a whim. I was in the area doing something. I was like, well, I'm here. So I guess I'll just go see this movie at the Chinese Six. And I went and I saw it the first time ever on a big screen and was just enamored with it. A, everybody's beautiful. So that helped. But I was really into the story, which is about two people that are impossibly beautiful, that do have really great personalities in ways and have very big flaws, but just can't seem to maintain a relationship with each other. Samantha, I would think that this is beyond your love of classic films, because of course you are a time traveler who does not watch anything before 1970, in my opinion. But you had seen this. You've watched this. What do you think of this? I have seen this. This was my second time seeing it. I believe I might even say this is my first time seeing it all the way through, because for some reason, I distinctly remember the beginning much more than the end when I was watching it this time. But I do have a little bit of an in for this film because of the two leads. For me, I mean, Funny Girl is one of my favorite films of all time, regardless of whether it sort of teeters on whether it's classic film or not. So anything with Barbara Streisand, I'm going to watch. And then the same goes with Robert Redford. I mean, he made a lot of films within the classic film time frame, but also beyond that, that I love. I mean, of course, The Sting, All the President's Men, all of that. So because of both of them, and the fact that it is set in the 1940s, which is very much my wheelhouse, I was definitely into this film. And I know we're probably going to harp on how beautiful they are. I am so jealous of Barbara Streisand's hair in this. I want her hair so badly. (laughs) I I love that Barbara Streisand's hair, even in Funny Girl, I think that was my biggest complaint about Funny Girl, is the movie is not set in the 60s, but her hair is distinctly 1960s. And that is something that also happens in this movie a great deal. Jill, what was your background with this movie? What do you think of it? Like I said, this is a really interesting film for me to speak of because so when it first came out, my mom and dad were in the middle of a really bad divorce. And I remember my mother went to see the movie and I asked her how it was. I was really little. And she said, someday when I get big, I could go see it. Cause I had already gravitated towards Barbara Streisand just with my grandmother's watching TV and the whole nine yards and Robert Redford. So that time period of when the film came out to when I actually saw it at about age 11 
I was home on a weekend, you know, just a little kid hanging out, flipping through channels. And it was on. And what brought my attention was, so in that period of time, my mom had initially seen it when it had come out to when I flipped through and found it as a kid, the song. So that's why I gravitated towards watching the film. And, you know, when you're 11, it's kind of like, oh, and I was kind of disconnected from it, but enamored by Barbara and Robert Redford, who, by the way, Robert Redford is my modern day, if you will, as I was growing up, crush. I was like, Robert Redford, everything. So as an adult, then when I went back and watched it, I I think I had both my kids. So I think I was about maybe 26-ish. Oh, man. The minute the opening scene, he's sitting at the bar and she comes over and she hesitates like to touch his hair and you can hear the music's cue up in the background. I just like started crying. So there's kind of like an emotional attachment from its conception and its release to the point that I actually, as an adult, first watched it. And like you said, goo goo over Robert and Barbara. And in my opinion, Barbara can't do wrong especially with acting to me it does show you how two beautiful people if you will can be flawed and how opposites attract and really then when I watched it again after that real first sit down as an adult really to me the whole political theme that ran through the whole film she even goes as far as I believe at some points she calls them a fascist And there's just that whole carryover in the background in Hollywood that to me, it was one of the films that really pushed that theme through the whole film. And Barbara having such a big voice, politically speaking, I'm just going to have to say, as an adult, and really delving into the Hollywood aspect of my personal draw to the industry and so on and so forth was really something to see because it amplified the fact that so many actors have that political stage and that political rhetoric that they do carry out in their speeches and in their work on the side of acting and so forth. So there's a lot of texture, obviously, with the characters. It's so super frustrating. My favorite scene in the film is the ball that they have. I'm just like the big band music. You mentioned the hair thing. That to me as an adult has been a pet peeve. It doesn't match up sometimes with where they should be in the sequence of time, but it was super cool. Nonetheless, I probably watched it now, I would say about nine times easily. And weird thing, true story. I did a run through. I said, let me do a refresher on this and see if there's anything that really jumps out at me. And I watched it on August 6th. True story. August 6th was actually, and I have to refer here to my notes. August 6th was the date Marvin Hamlish died of 2012, but I watched it on the 6th. And that whole aspect, like I said, with the film and so many connections with me in middle school, I was in band and so forth and very musical as a little kid growing up all through even past college. But Marvin Hamlish was a spotlight in middle school for my band instructor. We learned everything about Marvin from A to Z. So it was super weird to go, oh my gosh, he passed away on the day that I did my refresher. 
So it was just a really weird connection. And no, he didn't come through. <laughs> well, and you know, you brought up a lot. I want to unpack the political element, which I know some people when they watch this always feels like a curveball in the grand scheme of things. And I remember when I saw this at TCM, that was the big introduction, which was that this was originally written by Arthur Lawrence in the late 30s. Arthur Lawrence was introduced to the concept of activism by a young student that he modeled Katie on, who actually was a member of the Young Communist League and was an opponent of Franco and the Spanish Civil War. And he really remembered that interaction and decided to write this story about a couple that was at opposite ends of this political spectrum and what happens in the midst of the blacklist and all this stuff. And as slowly, I think they said in the introduction, slowly as the script went through the process and other people got involved, it slowly turned into the story of just a couple who have different political things. But he really wanted to make it as this spy movie where this couple has to deal with the fact that they are at opposite ends of the political spectrum and what is going on politically in America. And as somebody who loves John Garfield, who, you know, the blacklist killed him, unofficially speaking. I always wonder about what that movie would have looked like. Samantha, I know that you are a history buff, but not to the extent that I am. But how do you look at the political angle of this movie? Because by the third act, there's recording equipment, they're being spied on. Are you one of those people that feels that it always comes out of left field? or Does it feel organic to the narrative? The really interesting thing about the original plot versus what it turned into is for me, I didn't even really pick up on Robert Redford having necessarily opposing views. I think he was fairly ambivalent and he maybe didn't like how outspoken Barbara was, but he was just sort of a blasé guy and he hung around blasé people and she didn't like that. I don't think he ever outright disagreed with anything that she said. He just didn't like the way that she went about it. So I think that's really interesting. I think seeing them actually go at odds politically would have made for a whole different movie. And as far as the historical context, I do think it's really interesting that there are all of these Hollywood scenes and then you've got the Hollywood 10. So not only do we have the whole House of Un-American Activities Committee, we also have how it affected Hollywood involved in the story. And that is always of interest to me. I mean, I know you have your John Garfield sort of angle. For me, my whole House of Un-American Activities Committee research is all related to Marsha Hunt and Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall and their involvement with the Hollywood 10. So yeah, it was super interesting. I mean, to the best of their ability within, you know, it wasn't 100% historically accurate, but I also, of course, love seeing sort of how they would have made a picture back then. (laughs) Again, I mean, it wasn't 100% historically accurate. And we're talking about the hair. They basically just put red lipstick on them and was like, okay, it's the 40s. But yeah, I mean, I'd say it was fairly insightful. And it was definitely uh, interesting to watch all of that history woven into this love story. I think those two things are two of the things that I look for in a film. The history, I love period dramas, period pieces, and I love romance. So it checks all those boxes for me. I could just see this movie being made with Clark Gable and Rosalind Russell, essentially, you know, where he's the blase hubble 
she's the fiery Katie and they just, they can't get along. I'm pretty sure they made this movie in some way. It's probably just renamed something differently. Gil, what do you think about the political angle of this? I think it's really interesting because so it says we go through a time period with this relationship in the beginning when she's being quite the activist in college. There's the camp, right? There's his camp, there's her camp, there's the activists. And then there's the just kind of like Samantha said, just kind of getting through the day blase type of characters, if you will, or group of characters. But the politics to me, and maybe this is more of my age showing in some of the research that I've done, I would have liked to have seen maybe more political aspects drawn into this, because if you go back to that period of the 40s, and the blacklist and all this, the FBI had files on people on actors, they were labeling actors as communists. And this whole thing was going on behind the scenes. And I think that the fact with his character going in the direction that it did as a screenwriter and so on and so forth, and then to lead to the secret recordings in the house and all that going on. I do think there is a tiny bit of a disconnect. But again, I think that's only because showing my age and looking back at researching some of the stuff and seeing how things really laid out, it's a little disconnected with the political stuff, but it makes a lot of sense. One of the things that I found really interesting is that Barbara's character, Katie, actually quotes Eleanor Roosevelt in the film. I did write it down. She says when she's out hanging out with Hubble and his friends and they're drinking and he basically says something to her and she says, I don't behave myself. Now, in that context, Eleanor Roosevelt said, well-behaved women rarely make history. So it was kind of an interesting throw. Politically, I think to me, being set in the 40s, there was a lot of coming into the early 70s when the film was released. I felt there was a lot of background 60s type of political stuff, even though it was set in the 40s and moved through. To me, the protesting and things like that seemed to have an air of more of the 60s era activist type of feel. That's how I really look at it. And to be so outspoken, you know, against the war and to be so defiant about certain things. And then to have his character be, you know, he was an ROTC through college, and then he goes away. And he's kind of half in his uniform, half the time, half not, as Samantha said, kind of like teetering the fence on which side am I on? What do I like? What don't I like? But he doesn't really make a stance. But it moves the film, it shows the differences, the politics does. But I think now, in context of me doing a refresher on the film on August 6th, I think it's interesting to see a film like this or any other film where there's a strong political theme throughout with what we have gone through the past couple few years as a nation, and then to see how the industry reacts, and then to see the sides taken in, I can tell you, relationships. My husband and I are complete opposite ends of the spectrum politically. And that was made really clear the past several years. So I can, again, connect to this and see personally how there is a division politically can cause rifts in relationships. But I can also see that just the activism or being drawn to somebody who is really vocal, even if differing viewpoints, 
that that can be an attraction in a love story. Opposites attract. But Hubble, darn it, wasn't really totally opposite. So that's kind of what always catches me in the film. You bring up such a good point, which I think for me, the concept of the political aspect of it is it's because it's Katie who is the one who is doing it. You look at 1973, second wave feminism is starting to come in. Even now, I look at how Hollywood portrays the changes that women have with regards to self-esteem. And Katie is a woman that does not care what she says. She understands. She's incredibly smart. She knows her stuff. And she's willing to say that even if it's going to get her ostracized from a party and ultimately ostracized from the man that she loves. And that was a big part of Barbara Streisand as well, right? When she was in Funny Girl, many people said she couldn't have a career in Hollywood because she didn't look like the women that were popular. And so I know that one of the big criticisms Arthur Lawrence had with the script was that the actors were playing themselves and not playing their characters. But I do appreciate how Barbara's portrayal of Katie is a woman that understands that. And I think we're slowly changing it now. I don't necessarily think it's a zero sum game so much in film and television as it used to be. But she understands that her desires and her fight to do something bigger than herself will put her at odds with a relationship. I don't like to say this movie ends with her realizing in order to fight this good fight, I have to be alone. But at the same time, she understands that at least in this instance, Hubble is not the man that's going to be able to be by her side in that way. And I think that's really shocking and unique for 1973, especially because a decade or so later, the backlash era would happen, which reiterated to women that, you know, you had to go back home and have children and, you know, look at all the men you've emasculated in this grand rush for equal rights. I do appreciate so much what her character is. And at the same time, we could talk about Hubble Gardner as a character in a second, a character that I think people either love or hate. But I think the fact that he is apolitical, he's a guy that just wants to have fun. And so much of that is now what we see as white privilege. He's a good looking white guy. Like he gets to be blase about that. That is his benefit of his prestige as a white male in this era is that, yes, he has to go to war, but at the same time, he comes back with so many advantages and the ability to be praised. And he just wants to write a book, but for him, he gets in his own head of all of the things that are expected of him as the man that he can't really get out of his own head enough to even follow the own personal aspirations that he has which again feels very unique for 1973. But I think the really interesting thing about Hubble in this film is I do feel like he is at least somewhat aware of his white privilege. Oh yeah. Like the paper that he writes, it seems like he's acknowledging it. And that's just not something that, at least from the media that we see, that's not something that men did in the 40s. So the fact that he's even acknowledging it And I think he also is the kind of person who would rather defer politics to other people and other people's knowledge than tackle it himself. I think he has some things to say about social stances, but not really the heavy hitting issues that Katie does. And I think he's willing to sit back and let her take the reins and let her be the one to speak up and speak out about it. And he's just sort of a bystander. 
But I think that's obviously where the rift happens in their relationship. Katie wants someone out there fighting by her side, and he's not going to be that person. Yeah, it's interesting, Kristen, to your point, too, about the whole thing about how women were treated, let's say, back in the era of the 40s and whatnot. But there's a couple times in the film where Katie references herself as not being pretty enough. And that theme has been a consistent through Hollywood, let's just say through everything, more so back, you know, in the day, like you just said, go home, get married, have kids. That's your job as a woman. I'm not attractive enough. So therefore I'm not worthy. And to add to that, one of the scenes, and it goes into Hubble, One of the scenes that really freaks me out, and I remember, like I said, having watched it quite a few times, even for the first time sit down as an adult, is when Robert comes out and Katie's having a hard time sleeping or whatever, and she's all upset and she wants to talk to him and he comes over and he's got sleeping pills and he's like, here, take these sleeping pills, like take these and shut up. That is a reflection, I think, of the time period. I think that's pretty accurate. Women were noted as being hysterical, so it's kind of like, Let's dope up the horse and give the horse some sleeping pills, right? That part always resonates with me and sticks with me as just really sets the tone for the time period. And also, to both of your points, illustrates Hubble's awareness of what's going on, but his lack of willingness to take an effective part in Katie's life. Exactly. I think of, you know, not to get too in the weeds, but Betty Friedan writing The Feminine Mystique in the 1960s and commenting on how many women were anesthetized to their life. You think about the rise in barbiturates and how often that was prescribed to women for any little thing. I mean, barbiturates are what killed Marilyn Monroe, if you you really look at it. So it's really fascinating that that tends to be his entry into being like, we don't have to talk about this. You can do this. And it's the easy way out. And that's, I think, often one of the biggest criticisms about Hubble as a character is that he is always looking for the easy way out. You know, we haven't talked about Lois Childs, who is also in this, who was a kind of a a Redford regular. She also, I remember she was in The Great Gatsby with him. She plays Carol Ann, which is the antithesis of Barbara's Katie. She is very glamorous. She is very quiet and demure. And there's a couple of moments where you almost start to think that maybe Hubble and her have a thing that extends beyond his marriage to Katie. And and it is this very 1970s foil, right? You have the wrong girl and you have the right girl. But in this instance, I think the biggest problem is Hubble. You know, it's not necessarily neither of these women. It's his inability to decide what he really wants out of his life. And I do appreciate, I don't want to talk about the end right now, but I do appreciate that she is not the woman he ends up with at the end. I think it would be very easy for him to end up with her as this consolation prize or it was her all along type of thing. And again, the movie, I know Arthur Laurence hated this movie, but I love that the movie just always goes for the unclear, undefined thing you don't expect. I don't know if I would say it's 100% unexpected because he is, again, you said we'd get to the ending, but he is you know, latching on to a glamorous blonde who says maybe two words. So in that sense, I don't know about that. Nobody's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) But it's funny because she's almost like a female version of him a little bit. 
she's just sort of sitting back. I noticed that right away. <laughs> glamorous and blonde. And yeah, so that's a really interesting point. Again, we're talking about beauty here. I don't want to boil it down to just that. But Lois Childs is so So stunning. pretty. Yeah. It is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah she is. Um, and I love her little bit of attitude that she has. And the fact that she's with someone else, she's with the friend as they sort of flash forward after college, but she still has that little bit of bitchiness about her that Katie and Hubble got together. Even though she's not with Hubble, she's not okay with Katie being with Hubble. And I kind of love that about her. That's a good point to make. And I would sum up Carol Ann as knowingly operating in the background what her role is in the relationship but yet giving the grace for Robert and Barbara Katie and Hubble to work things out in their own time almost to me Carol Ann exudes this air that she knows it's going to fail I cannot put that out of my mind every time I've seen it this is not going to work out so I'm here but you are right Samantha that it's like Totally not 100% predictable, but at the same time, she was pretty much peripheral operating in the background through the whole film and up until the very end. And that to me was at the very end of the film, it was like, wait a minute, is that going to be Carol Ann when they come out and Katie comes across the street? So it was little curveballs, but not totally unpredictable. Yeah, I think that's sort of what Kristen was touching on is like, we almost expect it to be her. That's the expected ending. And the fact that it's not, but it's still someone of a more similar type to him speaks a lot. It does. And I feel like it's also more realistic. I think that the, I mean, again, we're going to talk about the ending, but the whole ending is so realistic. And and the ending is what I love most about the film too. Me too. That's funny you say that because that's my favorite part too. Well, this was a, an incredibly fraught production. I didn't realize that because everybody is so glamorous and elegant. But this was a movie that a lot of people were very upset by the time it was over. Arthur Laurence, as I mentioned before, hated this movie. He hated the script. He hated Sidney Pollack, who was the director, because Pollack wanted Hubble and Katie to be equals. And for some bizarre reason, told Arthur Laurence he couldn't talk to Robert Redford for any reason whatsoever. And when they created the script, over time, this script, I mentioned three writers. There were 11 writers that touched this over its life, including Dalton Trumbo and Alvin Sargent, which that's some decisions being made right there. Supposedly that script, by the time it was all done, was a garbled story with holes in it that nobody liked. And Arthur Laurence had to get an exorbitant amount of money come back and do rewrites. And then they ended up having to delay it because I guess the graduate somewhere was in there and they had to remove some elements that seemed very similar to that. But Arthur Laurence was, quote, horrified when he saw the rough cut of the film. He thought it had some good scenes, but he thought it was badly photographed, lacked coherence. Both actors just played themselves. Streisand, he didn't like her accent, that he felt really hurt her performance. Even Sidney Pollack said that he didn't think the film was that good and apologized and then ended up trying to edit it as much as possible. But Arthur Laurent said that it was never as good as it could be. Now, originally, they wanted, Katie was always given to Barbara Streisand, but originally they wanted Ryan O'Neill to play Hubble. And it was Pollock that brought in Robert Redford. And I always look at this movie and I know that 
Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill would make a movie together. They did What's Up, Doc, which is an interesting remake of Bringing Up Baby. It's not a favorite of mine, but I just can't see anybody else playing this role. And I know Robert Redford said he didn't like playing kind of prim and proper guys. Like, I'm a big fan of him in Barefoot in the Park, which he said was very different from his actual personality. But I think that he's the only guy I could ever see playing this. I just don't see anybody else because Hubble Gardner is such a frustrating guy. All the best movie men are though, right? All the best movie characters that you shouldn't like. He's a guy that is apathetic one minute, but then knows what he doesn't want the next minute. You know, Katie is so, so desperate to make him happy. She talks about buying all this food and making him pot roast, but not wondering if he likes it, you know, what she, she, she's so eager to please because as Jill, you mentioned, you know, the, the emphasis on look, she doesn't necessarily think a guy like him would notice her. So she has to go above and beyond. And he's just so frustrating, but it's okay. Cause it's Robert Redford. I don't know. Can you guys see anybody else playing this character? Definitely not Ryan O'Neill. Definitely not, because he has that, comparatively speaking to Redford, almost like a boy-like charm, especially at that time period. He would be too characteristically immature, I would say, where Redford has that edge he can ride. And that's what, to me, I agree with you, Kristen, makes him great for the part, because he can bounce between the two different characters that he really has like he can be assertive and then he can just be like nah and kind of play the role on the fence really I can't even think of anybody else but I have to say speaking of Redford did somebody clone him because man I think Brad Pitt's a great actor like really obviously a handsome guy but boy even to some of Redford's mannerisms it's spooky (laughs) we just talked about on a separate episode kim and i my other co-host we did an episode on once upon a time in hollywood and there are definitely moments in that film where i get redford vibes and again they've worked together so that would make sense i'm just glad that ryan o'neill is not in this movie i think of the other movie that dominated the 70s another weepy love story love story Love Story, oh, I hate to say this, Jill, especially, I I despise that movie. And if I I can pull an audible on this podcast, I will say we will never talk about Love Story on this show. I (laughs) saw that as a little kid. So I walked in on my mom watching it. At some point, it was on TV. And my mother goes, oh, you need to get out of the room. So it was always like, ooh, plant the seed. Someday when I get big, I'm going to watch this movie. And then I was like, what was the big deal? I I (laughs) agree, totally agree. Also, you mentioned that there was a lot of backstory with getting the film made and everything. And I also heard relative to the musical score that Barbara and Marvin had this back and forth for quite a while about the score. And well, specifically about the song, The Way We Were. And I thought that was interesting because she ended up winning on that one. But I didn't realize to what your point was explaining everything that went on. I knew it went through some rewrites, but I did not know to that extent. The one thing that I have to say, and this is so petty, but doing a movie that, you know, travels through periods of time, her nails were always red through the whole film. I was like, no, like, and I'm like, why? Like just these little 
subtle things somebody didn't catch. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Samantha, where do you fall? Have you seen Love Story? Do you like it? We've talked about this before. I have not seen it. And I think that's Good. why it would make such an interesting <laughs> episode. Like, because we disagree on everything. Just watch me watch it and love it for some uh, future birthday episode <laughs> down the line. <laughs> there are a couple things I wanted to mention. One about the making of the film and the script. And then I want to give my two cents on Redford, too. Okay, first off, I know that the screenwriter, it's super interesting how the basis for the story was his relationship with Farley Granger, which I kind of love that. And their different political views because it ties right back into that old Hollywood, which I love. And I wish that they had played up on that a little bit. And if they were to remake this, who says we couldn't cast it with two men? I just want to put that out there. I totally agree. I totally agree. I'm so glad you said that because knowing that and seeing how it was produced and released and you a contemporary version of the way we were cast with two men. I totally agree on that. Not to mention Farley Granger, I totally see being the Hubble type because that's who he was based on. He's so shy and reserved in like rope and strangers on a train that I'm like, yeah, he would totally be the one sitting back blase and he would have a very outspoken boyfriend. I could totally see that happening. (laughs) So I had to put my two cents in on that. But also on the Robert Redford point, I completely agree. We could not cast anyone else. That would not happen. One of the reasons why it's so important to me that we wouldn't want to cast anyone else is, okay, I hope people relate to this. I don't know if they will, but I think we were all the outspoken, nerdy, kind of ugly ducklings in high school. And there was always the perfect, gorgeous, popular guy, and you never thought that you had a chance with that person. And this movie gives us that. So if they cast someone less attractive, it wouldn't work. So I just want to put that out there. I love the wish fulfillment angle. It's very satisfying. It's satisfying to watch for that reason. And that's what I love about Funny Girl too, is that there's someone as gorgeous as Omar Sharif. And for decades, Barbara has faced this backlash and all of these negative comments about her appearance and how it related to her career, despite the fact that she was gorgeous. But she was unconventionally gorgeous. So I feel like those two male leads doing these movies with her and having these really amazing love stories with her really speaks volumes. And I love that. And hey, she's married to James Brolin too. So, you know, she won out in the end. So And she had an affair with Omar Sharif. So I wasn't going to say about Barbara and affairs that she may or may not have had with many of her co-stars, allegedly. But, you know, if she did, get it, girl. I read somewhere that she really, and it was actually, I think, her stating she totally was crushing on Redford during the film making. I think Redford was married at the time, so she knew boundaries and so on and so forth. But I also think, I don't want to quote this as being like 100%, but I think that made him a little tiny bit uncomfortable, didn't it? Did anybody read anything like that anywhere? All I read was that they didn't get along and it worked for their roles. Yes. I but I, I, I feel like it could have been, I'm going really far back here. It could have been like a situation with Norma Shearer and Tyrone Power making Marie Antoinette where 
Norma Shearer had like a big crush on him and he rejected her advances. So she hated him for the rest of the movie. I think it might've been something like that. Well, that's that's total to- speculation. I also have to wonder too about power struggle. I mean, Barbara is definitely a woman that does not suffer fools gladly. She's become a director as well. And Robert Redford is also someone who is directed and, you know, that two big egos right there. Like I have to wonder too, if that did not kind of work out in that way. I also want to say that there were similar claims made when she did A Star is Born, too, with Chris Christopherson. So Barbara's an interesting figure, just in general. There's no good segue to this, but I wanted to bring up, so Joe brought up things that annoyed her. I brought up something that I've always watched this movie several times, and I've always been a little leery about it. So there is a love scene in this movie where Robert Redford is passed out drunk and he's in her bed and then at a certain point she gets in bed and she is nude and she starts to like seduce the unconscious Robert Redford and then he in turn reciprocates while she's not with it so did we witness some sort of weird like assault happening there thank you for bringing that up because that (laughs) is an awkward point of the film that I was cringing. It was cringeworthy. The first time I saw it, it was cringeworthy when I rewatched on August 6th. It It just ages so so weirdly. It is awkward. And I'm glad you brought that up because I literally thought the same thing, Kristen. I'm like, Wow, like, but I was so confused. Like, this is right. I was like, but then I I kept saying, like, who, who is assaulting whom? Because at some point, the tables kind of turn, and I'm just like, I still don't think either of you have consented to anything. Now, mind you, before somebody sends me an angry email, yes, I know consent was not defined as well as it is now in 2021. Okay, but still, I mean, I know it's a romantic scene with the music and the gauze and she's got a full face of Estee Lauder on her face and the fact that he wakes up with no memory of what happened yeah totally that it's just it's oh my gosh it's awkward I don't want to draw those lines one of the issues I have with that whole scene from when they meet again to that I don't think they really play up enough that he's drunk I think he just seems tired and (laughs) if he's just tired and he's making moves on her then who's to say which I know is horrible to say but I just feel like they're not because of course in the morning it seems like yes he was totally drunk the night before it's so ill-defined exactly the question is why is it ill-defined like it doesn't need to be if they're going to have sex with each other like okay that's fine why does it need to be so like mysterious where he might not remember what happened like just have your characters get together you can do that I thought of that and I thought of it from let's take the time period that the not the period that the film was supposed to be in but when the movie was produced and they were filming and you almost can see like and I am not condoning non-consensual sex okay What I'm saying is that it's almost to the point where Barbara being a strong person to begin with in that era and females coming out and being more assertive and having that power, if that's the point that was attempted, they failed because it does get weird. When I was watching it earlier, the scene itself to me is very sad. 
It's really sad because watching it, you see that she sort of had the crush on him before and she thinks she has a chance with him. And then she has that moment of realization during where it's just wrong for her. She genuinely believes that he thinks he's having sex with someone else. And she's like, oh, I don't really have a chance. This isn't going to work. And that whole moment of realization is actually heartbreaking for me. I won't lie. No, it is sad. I totally agree. I agree 100% on that. And that's where to move to the ending, she redeemed herself as a woman. And I don't want to get into that because we haven't talked about the ending. But in my opinion, I would say that's a point, Samantha, that made me say, well, look at where she was here. It's a realization, what she was trying to do, what ended up happening, and then to reclaim her power at the end, which I think she did. That starts taking us into the third act when just decisions are made. I want to talk about Hubble Gardner, colon, most hated character in film. I don't know. Some people really, really don't like him. And that doesn't mean that he doesn't give them a lot of reasoning to. We watch the movie. There is this abrasiveness between the two of them. It boils down to what does Hubble say? It's about principles. And Katie says people are their principles. That's the fundamental distinction between the two of them. She feels that people are what they endorse and what they believe and what they espouse. And he says, no, you can have ethic in these things, but that doesn't define you. So he does end up having this, again, ill-defined kind of fling with Carol Ann while Katie is pregnant. And then when she gives birth, literally in the room where she has just given birth to their child, is like, so this isn't working out. She's like, yeah, I know. So because he's not the person that she wants him to be, you know, and I think that that's very hard to convey in relationship dramas, the concept of we idealize the people that we are with. And when that can't be done, how do you just not tread water at that point? He realizes that he can't be with her and they decide to split. I think it's a bad concept of logistics. But, you know, the movie's been long enough, I guess. So they were like, well, why don't we just have them break up while she's just given birth to a living being? That is one point in the film that really irks me. And before she gives birth, remember how she says to him, well, can you stay with me until the baby's born? Paraphrasing, right? I wanted to reach through the screen and say, no, just dump them now. Like, <laughs> Like, I don't need somebody to go through a pregnancy with, it's like, again, it's this back and forth with exuding your feminine power. If you're frail and you need a man to have a baby and then you want to project onto somebody to have sex with them when they're drunk, it's like finding your voice, but it sends mixed messages. And to me, it was super frustrating. I hate the fact that they had that hospital scene and we didn't even see the baby. Rachel, I think it was, they named yep. the baby. But I'm like, no, the power should have been obtained by saying, hit the road, Jack, before the kid was born. I feel like the whole baby was such an afterthought. <laughs> That's the way we were. God, Dash, the baby is an afterthought. <laughs> it really is. I feel like it's just one of those things, almost like a TV show in its fifth season. Where they feel like they have to have that plot for some yes. reason. Yes. Yes. And this movie. Was it Oliver Syndrome? So <laughs> <laughs> this movie would have been so much better without it. 
Not only that, but I mean, talking about is Hubble Gardner a horrible human being or not, zero interaction with this child's life. Zero. Doesn't even know who she is. That's the thing. So the movie ends with them reuniting in New York. Katie is the exact same person she was doing her political work, but she has remarried as has Hubble. He's working on a TV show and he does ask about his child that he obviously has had no interaction with. He asks if the man she's married to is a good father to his kid, implying that he has really no intention of changing up that paradigm. And I just was sitting there kind of thinking if the concept of people are their principles, as Katie says, like, yeah, that's got to be a real disappointment that he can't make the time to see his child and has had seemingly no interest or desire to see her. I just kept thinking, we did an episode recently on The Parent Trap. That was my biggest issue with that movie was how can you two people hate each other so much that they would rather separate their children and keep the children apart for years and act like they didn't have another child so that they never had to see each other again. I just like, that's proof of two very selfish people. And I feel like Hubble is kind of the same way. I could be really, really shallow and just be like, yeah, but he's Robert Redford and he's in jeans and sweaters a lot. Like I'd let him walk all over me and treat me like garbage probably because he's Robert Redford. I mean, I could say that, but at the same time, I think that the ultimate kind of ending of the way we were is this really tragic look at how people fail us and the ways that they let us down. I always think of that moment in Gilmore Girls, if anybody's seen it, when Rory invites Dean over to watch a movie and she says something, you wanted Robert Redford to leave his wife to go back to Barbara Streisand in the way we were. And A, he hadn't seen the movie, which, come on, Dean, like, get on that. But also, I thought that was a really stupid reading of the movie because Katie is married. So it wouldn't matter if Hubble leaves his wife because she has a relationship that is obviously sustaining her and is what she wants. I think that there's a group of people that put the choice on Hubble. If he wanted to be with Katie, he could leave his wife, totally negating Katie's choices which I think says so much about how people read this movie. And I think how we as filmgoers look at movies, it's easier for us to be like, well, Robert Redford could make that choice. No, like, screw you. It's Katie's choice. And who knows if she'd even take him back. I don't think it's either of their choices, really. This whole movie to me is, this is why relationships don't work out. Sometimes they just don't. And I think that's the whole thesis of this film. And it's obvious they've both moved on. It's just realism at its finest, but it's also super romantic. And I think those two things combined is what I love about the ending. But some child support, maybe a little bit of like visitation rights. That's the thing that I have an issue with, because if it weren't for the child, which I honestly, I think shouldn't have even been a part of the plot in the first place. But if it weren't for that, I think they should have just parted their ways and it would have been done. I always hate movies that kind of say like the child is the little piece that's left behind. Like that really sucks for the child. (laughs) This whole movie does really suck for the child. Not only that, but the other thing that I do want to say that I love about the ending is you can tell in Katie's face, the whole reason they got together was because they had a reunion. They saw each other. It was total fate. That's how they got together. 
you could tell in Katie's face at the end that she had a little bit of expectation for something like that to happen, or at least something good to happen out of them by chance meeting again. And the really heartbreaking moment that I just love so much is when she offers, you know, hey, come for a drink sometime. And Robert Redford just says, no, I can't. And it's just, it's so realistic. It's so perfect. There's that disappointment of it's not going to happen like it happened last time. And I, I love it. I agree. I totally agree. The end scene there on both your points. I think Katie redeems herself specifically because she's gone that far and Rachel's now an adult. And obviously there was no connection between the two of them, Katie and Hubble, for that whole period of time. So I'm like, good. Whether she was married or not, good. He wants to leave little Rachel out of the equation for 18 years. Let him. That's why I say she should have dumped him before she had the baby. But you can see the emotion in her face. You are absolutely right, Samantha. It is so like true to form even today, that whole way it plays out. And I think the greatest thing is see a Hubble, see a Katie. That to me is the movie. Like It's like, see ya, wouldn't want to be ya, wouldn't want to be with you. <laughs> but see ya, are we going to do this again? You know, are we going to have this happenstance moment crossing the street or whatever? But I do think the ending is great, but I do agree with the, you know, poor baby Rachel. I think that is a screw up moment in the movie. Totally. I do love that. Yeah. This movie is exactly like you said, it's Katie's story. And I think that I love that at the end, she'll be all right. Poor Hubble probably end up sleeping around with the secretary or something. Like he's (laughs) never going to be happy. And I do think that that's the tragedy is that she knows who she is and that he will probably spend an inordinate amount of his life not knowing exactly who he is, which is why, you know, he played Gatsby. I mean, come on. (laughs) But there was an attempt a decade after this movie came out, uh, after everybody had kind of gotten over how much they hated working together, that Robert Redford actually approached Arthur Lawrence to make a sequel. And it was going to be about Hubble and his daughter, who would have been a radical like Katie, meeting but, quote, be unaware of their relationship and complications would ensue. I don't want to know what those complications are, okay? But complications would ensue. Both agreed they did not want Sidney Pollock in the movie. Laurence wrote a script, and he got this very brief acknowledgement that Redford got it, but he never heard from him after that. And then in 1982, Sidney Pollock approached Arthur Laurence about a sequel that producer Ray Stark had proposed, but nothing transpired from that. And then in 96... Barbara Streisand came across the sequel that Arthur Laurence had written. I don't know if it was the one he sent to Redford or the one he sent to Pollock. And she wanted to produce and direct it, as well as bring Robert Redford back to co-star. But none of them wanted to work with Ray Stark. Laurence thought the script wasn't good as he remembered it and agreed to rewrite it once Ray Stark agreed to sell the rights to the characters and their story to Barbara Streisand. But nothing happened. So the next year, Ray Stark asked Arthur Laurence if he was interested in adapting the original film for a stage musical that would have starred Kathy Lee Gifford. Arthur Laurence declined, and any new projects that have been about the film have been mired in development hell. Arthur Laurence died, unfortunately, in 2011. So any sequels or anything that come of this would have to be written by someone new. And, you know, Barbara's still directing. She 
trying to make a, a feature film musical of Gypsy happen. That has not happened. I feel like Barbara's one of those that gets really excited about a project and then moves on when she realizes she has a million other things that she has to do. So do I think we'll ever see a sequel to The Way We Were? Probably not, but it would be interesting, especially now that Redford's retired. You know, I don't know. Maybe a prequel with Brad Pitt. I don't know. We could do something. I, I remake. Stranger things have happened with the streaming and miniseries and all that. I don't know if I'd want to see a sequel, though. And I'm so glad, especially no offense with Kathy Lee Gifford, I would not have watched it. <laughs> it would have um, been a play. Yeah, it would have been a, some sort of musical. Oh, a musical. Oh, the musical. Sorry. Yeah, I just would not have entertained that. Yeah, but, that sounds horrible. Not going to yeah. <laughs> That's how I was plugging my ears. I'm like, no, 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 no. But you know, it would be really cool if they did the two men and did a remake and Brad starred in it, maybe with Robert. I don't know. That's too weird. But I no. think even Brad's a little too old now. I hate to yeah. say. Well, yeah, maybe. Maybe. I would love to see it with like two really cool unknowns. And this is a really distinct point that I want to make. If it were 100% historically accurate, that would be so cool. Like <laughs> like the, the remake of Gatsby that they did where they really sort of brought out the opulence of the 20s. I think if they really did a nice modern 40s with the love story and made it gay, perfect. I think they should. I think that's a fantastic idea. I really do because I would totally watch it because knowing going into it that that's really how it was written or meant to be or the story that was the yeah the total inspiration and I think that would be awesome why not do that because there's interest it covers not just the political activism but it also covers everything going on in modern days it ties back to that time period when it was not acceptable and just adds more layer to the story but yeah heck if they did a rewrite and shot it as it's meant to be i would totally watch that but no i i don't think a sequel with especially with robert with how things go with rachel that's not anything i'd want to see like Kristen, you made a comment about that i just i wouldn't want to know what those issues were you can almost see it coming really but yeah I think Redford, I mean, he's retired now. He's not making movies, but I think he's done kind of that older man who's kind of sowed his oats and has to reconcile. I mean, the old man of the gun is very similar to that. So I just don't see the benefits of it at this point. Odds are we'll never see it anyway. So any final thoughts on the way we were? I say see it. Yes, I can poke fun at it and question whether we might have seen some assault happening, but it's still a very beautiful movie, and I love it so much. Everybody's beautiful. Robert Redford, sweaters. Uh, just go watch it. I say watch it, too. Similar reasons. Two beautiful people, two great actors, really, is what it comes down to. I think they're both great actors. And, yeah, I think nowadays you go back and you look at it in context of everything. You're going to feel awkward in at least one place. But I like the layers. I think it's a good love story. It's one of my favorite movies, but there's an emotional connection through my life to it in one way or another. So I say see it. I totally agree. I would definitely recommend it. And that's not saying a lot coming from me. I don't tend to go for movies made after the 60s. But for me, this one, and not to mention I adore escapism romance. And this is the opposite of that. I mean, it has that romance 
and it, but it's totally realistic. And I think that that's the beauty of it. It's really poetic realism. And that's what I love about it. It's flawed, but I think it's totally worth seeing. I think that's what makes it appealing, at least to me, is that it is flawed in a couple different ways. But yeah, I think if it wasn't for Redford and Streisand, I don't think I would be saying it. Meaning if you put two different actors in those roles, I totally agree. Kristen said it earlier. I don't think it would have done as well, so to say. Well, listeners, let us know your thoughts on the way we were. Barbara Streisand, Robert Redford, all of that. You can email them to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com and we'll read them on a future episode. I'd like to thank Jill Marie Morris for joining us again. Jill, where are you on social media? What's coming up from you? Feel free to promote whatever you want. Well, thank you for having me. It's so much fun, Kristen. I can be found on Facebook, Jill Marie Morris one and on Instagram at Jill Marie Morris. The website, jillmariemorris.com has all sorts of info. Like I said, keep your eyes open. There's some cool things coming down the pike and thank you. That's going to wrap up this edition of Ticklish Business. As always, we are available wherever you get your podcasts, including Audible and Spotify. Help us out. Leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Those things do matter and we appreciate them so much. We are on all social medias, including Twitter and Instagram. If you search Ticklish Biz and our YouTube channel, if you search the Ticklish Business Podcast, please be sure to follow us there. And again, our Patreon is patreon.com slash Ticklish Biz. We would love to get your support. Samantha, what about your projects? Where can people find you on social media? Well, my website is musingsofaclassicfilmatic.com. You can find my Cooking with the Stars posts over at classicmoviehub.com. And you can follow me most actively on Twitter at Classic Film Geek. And remember, our official website is journeysofclassicfilm.com. We've got a lot of stuff going over there as well. But we will be back next time with a new episode. Till then. Bye.